Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight as we're going to be focusing in on uh, two things during this first uh, period where I get to share with you. We're going to mainly focus in on the way the character of God displays for us how we should care for each other. And secondly, we're going to see how the Bible itself instructs about how we should care for one another. If you have your booklet that was given to you at the door, you can go ahead and open that to page 7. That's where we're going to begin today. And we're going to walk through this together and learn and understand how God himself is our model for genuine care. The key verse that we're going to focus in on is found in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, which says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now the key little line that I want you to notice in that verse is the line that says, as, just as. As I have loved you. The way that we are to love is a reflexive love. It is a reflex from how we have received love, how we have encountered love. It is a reciprocal love where we have been transformed and therefore we are changed in our outlook and our treatment of others. So for example, uh, what we're going to be considering now is that all of our relationships with others are called to be different because we have a relationship that is with the Lord. Uh, one of the things that uh, is mentioned here is the highlighted quote up there by Tripp that says, The love of Christ is not only the foundation for our personal hope, but our incarnation of that love is our only hope for being effective for Christ with others. In other words, do you ever want someone to change? Do you want somebody who is having a hard time or suffering or hurting to be comforted? Do you want somebody that has brokenness in their life to be restored? Do you actually want those things? The only hope that you have for actually providing help is if you are following the example that we have in God himself. And we see this particularly clearly in the Bible in that the way the New Testament often speaks to the church as a whole about caring for one another is with these terms that we call the one anothering terms. Now, I actually love the Greek word for this because the Greek word is all alone, and it sounds like all alone, but its actual meaning is one another. And these one anothering phrases are all throughout the New Testament. There are 40 distinct different ones. There are 28 that are positive and 12 that are negative. In the back of this booklet, back on page 51, there's one of the appendices. You'll find a list of them where you can look at what they actually say. But these one anothering passages are particularly potent in terms of informing the church how it's to operate. Now, I want to encourage you to think about this a little bit as I read these examples that are listed here. Most of the time, our experience with the church in modern America looks something like this. You wake up in the morning, maybe you eat breakfast, maybe you don't, I typically don't, and then you come to church, you walk in the doors, perhaps you walk in late, and you sit down and you talk to the people around you just a little bit at the beginning and the end of the service, and then you go home. However, many of these one-anothering passages do not fit nicely or comfortably within that framework. I want you to see, as I'm reading through these, that Generally speaking, these one-anothering passages are going to require more than just 
attending a service once a week. It's even going to be more than just attending a Bible study or getting out of your house a couple of extra times to go to a community group or an event like this one. It's going to require pursuing the other individuals in the church to love them and care for them. Consider some of the things that are stated here. For example, in Romans 12.10, it says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Has anyone ever described you as being devoted to something? What are you devoted to? Um, Vicki, you are a devoted Mets fan. Gary, you are a devoted Mets fan. We, we can tell, right? It's, it's obvious to everyone in the church who loves the Mets and is devoted to them. Has anyone ever looked at you and described you, do you think, as being devoted to one another in brotherly love? What would that look like? Would it look like you investing your time and your energy and phone calls and text messages and thought and prayer to those who are around you at church? Look again at that same verse. It says, give preference to one another in honor. One of the things that Americans are particularly bad at is thinking about the needs of others and preferring them over themselves. We are an independent people that like to think of ourselves first. Now I say that it's true of Americans, but let's be real. It's true of all people everywhere, probably for all time. We don't like to give preference to other people. We like to prefer our own desires and our own needs. But this is what it says we are to do for one another. Also, in the same chapter, a few verses later, in verse 16, says, Be of the same mind toward one another. One thing that I have noticed that's really interesting is uh, when I was a youth minister, uh, I was a youth minister in Queens for uh, five years and then in Indiana for two years. One thing that I've noticed is that when you get your little group of students and you connect with another group of students, such as happened here last night with I think five or six youth groups came together in this building and joined in the same room, one of the things that I have noticed is that if you hear somebody from any of the groups tell a joke, you can immediately identify who else is part of their group by who laughs at the joke. They all think the same way when they're in that same little group, right? They, they start to have a collective reasoning. They start to have inside jokes. They start to have the same mind. One of the things that is required by having the same mind is actually being with one another, spending time with one another. What does it say here in Galatians 5.15? But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. This is speaking about negatively, don't bite and devour each other. Now, of course, this is not a literal passage. It's talking about the fact that these people were being aggressive and angry and un and uh, presenting uncomfortable situations of separation and disunity within the church. And we are called not to be like that. Then uh, here also notice that the word for one another is the word in the original alelos or alelon. It implies reciprocal, one-on-one -on -one ministry to each other. It is the most often repeated one is love one another. You actually see that many, many times in the New Testament. You shouldn't be surprised. One of the most common commands in all of Scripture is to love, love God and love others. We want to explore, explore a little bit more of this verse, and the context of this verse is very simple. You guys probably all know this story very well. It's the night that Jesus was betrayed. He takes his disciples into the upper room, and he does something almost unthinkable. He takes off his outer garment, ties it around his waist, he gets down like a servant, and he begins washing the nasty dirt off of the feet of the disciples. That scenario is almost incomprehensible to the modern mind. Like, none of us in this room, trust me, none of you in this room would be comfortable touching my feet. None of you. But I'm at least wearing shoes today. 
In those days, as they were walking around in the streets of Jerusalem, filled with pack animals and animals being prepared for sacrifice, the ground would have been covered with excrement. It would have been covered with the lack of plumbing elements, therefore human excrement. It would have been filled with dust and dirt and grime as they were traveling from outside of Jerusalem and in. Their feet would be nasty. Um, I used to live in Brazil for a time, and I used to live on a mountain, and the city was down in, in the valley, so I would walk up and down the mountain, and by the time I came back, my legs were practically black with the dirt that was on the road that I would walk. It was absolutely disgusting, and Jesus gets down and takes the point of the lowest position on the totem pole in their society, and like a servant, he washed their feet, and it's there that he tells them, I give you a new commandment. Do you realize how powerful that statement is to people who were following the old covenant, the covenant of commandments? And he says to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Why is love one another the most repeated command in the New Testament? Well, there's a couple things that we want to consider. First of all, from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. In 1 John, of course, we read that God is love. Here we read this. Sorry, it takes me a second to move in this giant, giant font Bible. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Just pause for a moment on that. Part of coming to Christ, part of being saved is coming to the awareness that God has set his affection on you. That he has loved you apart from any merit of your own. He has determined that he is going to place his love upon you. We have come to know experientially and believe in our mind the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Part of the reason why it's so important is because this concept of love is an abiding love. So we have to understand this idea. There's this reciprocal abiding or uh, this abiding in God as God abides in us language that makes no sense in nature. There is nothing in the created universe that can be described this way where something is simultaneously inside of something while at the same moment existing on the outside and surrounding that thing. We are abiding in while he is abiding in us. It's a very confusing statement if you think about it in literal terminology. But the point is you are to be saturated in the love of God. And we hear this not only here but in places like John 15 that we are to abide in this love. Another aspect of this is that loving one another leads to holiness. We see this, for example, in the book of Romans <clears throat> chapter 13. I do want to read this one to you because I think it's really helpful. In Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 8, we read this. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, 
If you love one another, it's going to produce holiness in other areas of your church and in your personal life. Love is one of those grounding things that pre prevents other forms of sin. God is love, and when we imitate that in God, that love, and it begins to permeate our actions and our, our relationships with other people, it results in limiting and cutting off all of these other forms of sin. If you go to 1 Corinthians 13, for example, it says, it says love is patient and kind, and then the very next thing that it says is that love is not and lists eight things. It's like the octagonal opposite of what love is. Love is not many things, and therefore, if you are loving, you are not sinning against people in all of these ways. And when we look to God and learn who he is and what his love is like, it results in us loving each other rightly and therefore results in us operating in holiness. Notice there's also evangelistic uh, implications here that he says, by this all people will know that you're my children. You're, they're going to know that you're mine because you love each other. Your love is one of the purest indications that you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. The way that we operate as a church is necessarily impacting the culture and society around us. So we want to also notice that God is a God of genuine care. Of course, we already looked at the fact that God is love. I want you to see the way that God speaks about this himself in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 is really significant in this way. You see, God shows up in Exodus 3, and he talks to Moses from the burning bush, and he explains to him, I am who I am. But there's not a lot of detail there. Although that name is incredibly powerful and significant and important throughout history, when we get to chapter 33, God reveals more deeply what it means that I am who I am. It explains who he is. And he says this in verse 5 and following. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The main thing that I want you to notice there is the fact that over and over he describes himself in, in terminology that we would view as either categories or subcategories of love itself. And even he says that he is not only merciful, not only gracious, not only slow to anger, not only, not only all of those things, but he is abounding, as in overflowing, as in it cannot be contained with steadfast, unmovable, unbreakable, eternal love. That is an incredible description, and this passage, this self-description of God is almost like the Bible in summary. It's the definition of God and his interaction with the entire world. And not only God the Father is this way, but we see this in the Trinity in its fullness. We see this in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in your book, there's a number of passages that we could look at there. We're not going to take time to look into them, but you don't need to read them to know that this is true in the Scripture because you're aware of the Scripture enough. Also, in your own life, you can see this, that people are broken. People have problems. People experience all forms of suffering and sickness and, and ailments, and they believe things that are not true, and they think things that are incorrect. And this results in the human condition being very troubled. Well, how does God deal with this? The good news is 
We don't have to be like that. We don't have to continue on in these ways. The Lord actually provides us with help. And what we see in Jesus Christ coming and to be one of us, to be like us, to be human, uh, he lived our experience yet without all of the negative things that we are seeing here in his heart, in his mind. He never once believed something that was untrue about God or about himself. He never once experienced these kinds of human um, this human suffering and then responded negatively or with sin, Jesus comes into the world and he corrects it. One of the best ways that I can describe that is when Jesus encounters somebody with leprosy and he touches them. In the Old Covenant, what we see is that whoever touches somebody with leprosy becomes unclean. But when Jesus touches somebody with leprosy, they become clean. And that's what we see happening when Jesus is incarnate, when he comes here to earth to live among us, that he, I like how it uses the term, terminology here, that he rehumanizes all that was dehumanizing. And Christ has come and he has put on flesh and he has lived as one of us, yet in the midst of that, we see that he is full of love. So if you want to know how to love someone, look to Christ, look to Jesus. He is the perfect model of what it looks like to love. Uh, he quotes here from that book we went through in our community groups at, at uh, our church, uh, uh, gentle and lowly, that if compassion clothed itself in human body and went walking around this earth, what would it look like? We don't have to wonder. We see it in Christ. He is the perfect representation of love and compassion. Because we are made to be image bearers, we see that, of course, in Genesis chapter 1, we should also love one another. God is, uh, God is a loving relationship within the Trinity, and this is the way you know that you are growing in likeness. Let me explain that just a, a, a tiny little bit here. One of the greatest differences between Christianity and Islam or Judaism is that we do believe in the Trinity. Uh, we believe that God has for all eternity past existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, for all eternity past, God has loved God. God the Father has loved the Son and Spirit, and the Spirit has loved the Son and the Father, and so on. We believe that God is love because his eternal attribute of love has been expressed within the Trinity forever. But these other religions of Judaism and of Islam, they do not believe God is love. They believe God can love or that God can have love, but that cannot be the defining marker of his character because he had no one to love in their theology before he created something upon which to express his love. Well, Jesus has been loving the Father for all of eternity. He is love. The Father has loved the Son for all eternity. Therefore, we see the love of God is not new when creation begins. But when creation begins, God begins to set his affection on his creation. And in particular, he, he creates man in his own image to love them. Now, it's, it's very incredible that as we, we're going to finish up this first part very rapidly here, it's very incredible for us to note that God himself has chosen to love anyone. If you create something, you are not required to love it. But God has chosen to set his affection upon people, and therefore we can learn from that and display love like he loves others. Now there's much more that you can read here on your own. I'm not going to go, take time to go through that right now. But I particularly encourage you to look through the portion there that says genuine love for Jesus results in genuine love for others. This is incredibly key, and we're going to come back to this many times over the next couple of days. The fact that there is a natural response of the human heart 
when you love God, that you will then love others. Of course, we see that in Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 through 40, uh, that he says that all the law and the prophets hang on this one thing, that you love God and love others. And we see that the way that is expressed in Colossians 3 and Galatians chapter 6. We're going to go ahead and turn the page now to page 10. We're going to move very quickly through seeing how Scripture is involved in this. And in particular, we're going to look at a couple of terms that are incredibly important. We're going to look at what it means that the Bible is inspired, that the Bible is inerrant, and that the Bible is sufficient. And understanding these words is incredibly significant when it comes to being able to care for others. Because if you do not understand this, the natural way that you are going to care for others is either you are going to respond by how you have seen someone care for you in the past, whether that's a good or a bad example. Or secondly, you're going to start going out and looking for what we call professionals, and you're going to follow their example. So perhaps you're looking at psychology and looking up psychological uh, professionals, and then you're going to take statistics and uh, people who know nothing of Christ, don't believe in God, don't believe in the Scripture, and take their counsel and begin using that as your model for helping others. Well, the good news is we have something much greater, and that is the Word of God. We first want to see that the Word of God is inspired, that word theomnustos in Greek, that it is breathed out by God. Now, there's a really key concept to understand about this, because if you get this wrong, it undermines the value of the Scripture in caring and counseling and loving others today. If you believe that God has spoken in His Word, there's some value there. But if you understand correctly that God is speaking through His Word, it makes it so much more potent and capable for use today. The Word of God is living and active. It is not passive. It is not dead. It is currently being used by God to communicate truth to you. This word is not static. It is currently being used by God to send his message to you. Unlike you and I, where we say words and then they fall to the ground and then people either change because of them or they forget them or they move on from them and we have to repeat ourselves over and over. God does not need to do that. When God speaks once, those words resound forever and hold their power forever. That's why in the book of Joshua, it refers to the fact that God says to Joshua that none of my words will fall to the ground. His words do not fall. They are powerful and active and working even today. So when we care for others, when we counsel them, we do so through the grid of the scriptures, approaching whatever situation, literally anything that comes up, God has given us everything necessary to approach it with the word of God. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit for our use in the church, for our use in our Christian life. Understanding how to care for people means you have to necessarily dig into the Word. It is a hard thing to commit yourself to the Scripture consistently and faithfully, but you are not going to have the proper tools to serve others without the Scripture. It is completely inspired, which means it is from God's own heart, through his mouth, to the ears of his people. The second thing we need to see here is that it is inerrant. Inerrancy, we could also use the term infallibility. Uh, inerrancy just means in era, meaning it does not err. It is always perfect. It is always accurate. Infallibility means that it doesn't fail. Anything that was promised will come to pass. Here what we need to know is this 
a very important fact that whatever the Bible says is actually true. You see, the scripture itself, if you have doubts about it, you're not going to utilize it faithfully or well in helping others or even yourself. Your life is going to be mired with confusion and frustration and, and basically all of the things that you're going to desire to help people with, you're going to struggle with yourself if you're not capable of going to the word and believing that it is all true. One of the examples it gives here is from Isaiah chapter 20 verse 1, which is just a description of Sargon of Akkad who came in and began to attack the people. And for years, literally like 1,800 years from the time of the writing of the New Testament, nobody knew who this guy was. And they were like, well, the Bible certainly cannot be true because this guy who's supposedly a very powerful figure, we have no evidence that he even existed. But then in the 1800s, they not only found out that he did exist, they found his palace, they found his library, they found tons of other artifacts regarding him, and they were like, oh yeah, by the way, this uh, thing that we've used to deny the scripture for centuries, actually now, um, it actually proves the scripture is true. And so all of the people who had put all of their eggs into this basket of undermining the scripture through archaeology learned once again, and has always been true, archaeology is the friend of the Christian. It always proves what the Bible has said to be true all along. And so here they give the example that it's never a good idea to mock the Bible or to deny the Bible or to reject the Scripture. It is true. It is fully true. It is inerrant. It does not fail. Um, the third thing we need to see here about this is that the Scripture is sufficient. And the most important of uh, the three of these in terms of your ability to connect with others, I, I doubt most people in this room, I doubt most of you, deny the fact that the Word of God is inspired by God himself. I doubt most of you deny the fact that the Word of God is inerrant or infallible, but I think the place that most of us kind of falter here is on the sufficiency of Scripture for all things in terms of caring and counseling others. Because I see this happen all the time. When somebody says that there is a problem in their life, I actually had a conversation with somebody um, who is not from New York not too long ago, and they said, you know, there's somebody in my family who's going through a very difficult time. I said, how are, you, how are you trying to help them? And they said, well, you know, I did take some psychology classes in college, and so I have some pretty good, uh, pretty good understanding of how to deal with that. And then they progressed to explain to me how all of the things they were going to do to help them were going to assist them in, uh, in caring for this person's needs. Meanwhile, literally everything they said was the opposite of what the scripture would say. Uh, we have a tendency to run to the professionals or to our own uh, comprehension of how to serve somebody. Oftentimes, our, our way to deal with the situation is just, let's try to distract them and get their mind off of the suffering. Let's try to turn their attention to something a little bit more fun or jovial. And it's hard for us to know how to care for someone or love someone in these situations. But what we often don't do well is go actually look at what the Bible says to do for someone and care for them. Here's why this is so important. I know that many of you are from our church. Some of you are from other churches. I know a lot of you are from Crossbridge. Thank you for coming. Um, one of the things that is really important in this regard is that what so often happens in the church is that people attempt to help by saying, you just need to go talk to the pastor or you need to go talk to the elders. And there's nothing wrong with that. Trust me, your elders love you. And we want to serve you and care for you and shepherd you and guide you. But every member of the church should be capable of caring for one another in this way, in terms of using the scripture to guide them through hard times. When suffering arises, when trials come, and they certainly will, 
every person should be able to wield the sword of the scripture for the purposes of transformation in the lives of others. I think of Romans chapter uh, 15 where it says that we are to teach one another. One of the things we want to look at here is 2 Peter chapter 1. When we talk about the sufficiency of scripture or even the inerrancy of scripture, uh, we often go to 2 Peter as one of our guidelines. It is one of the best places in the scripture to learn about what it means that God has breathed out his word. One of the things that it says here is at the beginning, starting in verse 2, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling of blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. Oh, I'm reading First Peter. I was like, this is really good. This is not what I was aiming for. Second Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 3, actually. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now, that is one of the most dense passages about the Word of God in the Word of God. And one of the things that I want you to see regarding this is it says that in going to the Scriptures, you have everything that you need for life and godliness. You have everything you need to know about God's promises to you. And even through the Scriptures, you become what he calls divine partaker, or you become partakers of the divine nature. You get to take part in his divine nature through the word of God. Do you really want to help somebody when somebody is suffering, when somebody is going through trials? If you want to help, this is the way to do it. Go to the all-sufficient word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the word of God is breathed, uh, the word is breathed out by God and it is of great value for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Do you want to be able to do those things? then you need to use the word. There are a couple of examples here. I'm not going to go through them in depth for the sake of time tonight, but I would encourage you to do so on your own. The two examples that are given here are the examples of lament and the examples of conflict. And the reason these two were selected out of all the things that exist is because these seem to be the two hardest things for us to handle. In other words, when somebody is suffering, how do you weep with those who weep? How do you take part in their trial with them in a way that's not just frivolous and saying, hey, let me distract you for a little while. Let me just take your attention off of it. How do you enter into their sorrow with them and join them in that place in a way that is godly and biblical so that you might pull them out of their suffering, so that you might walk with them and bear their burden with them? He uses the example here of Psalm 42 and 43. I'm sure you know Psalm 42 at least to some extent. Uh, if you don't, we have a great sermon on our website from Jonathan Rodriguez. Of course, you know the opening line uh, that there, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. That is one of those passages that we sing it, and it's like the song sounds so nice and pretty. As the deer, it's like very friendly sounding and warm. But that's not how the author wrote it. He was moaning and devastating. He writes about how it feels like he's dying and that he is crashing, the waves are crashing on him over and over and over. The breakers of God are crushing him. 
He feels the weight of suffering, and in that it teaches us how to lament. Also in the next chapter, 43, it, talks, it begins with, Vindicate me, O God. When other people are mistreating you, how do you respond? And how can you walk with somebody through that? The other example that is given is the example of conflict. How do we deal with conflict together? And I like the four G's that they mention here. First, glorify God. And of course, that's uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Get the log out of your own eye. How do you deal with conflict? Well, first, make sure that you're not actually a hypocrite in approaching the conflict. Make sure that you deal with that conflict by dealing with your own sin first. Thirdly, gently restore. We see that if somebody has fallen, like your job isn't to just condemn. Your job is to restore them. And finally, go and be reconciled to that person. If somebody has something against you, Jesus says in Matthew 5, you must leave your gift there at the altar. Like before you even give it, just go and make it right with them. In other words, the Bible is very clear about how we deal with conflict with others. The Bible has prescriptions for all of life. And so these are just two examples, but it's literally everything, and we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on other things about genuine care. But this is just a sample of the fact that because we have a God who has given us his word, he has spoken to us, he has not been silent, he has given us the inspired word, the inerrant word, and the sufficient word for us, we can use that for the counsel of his people. That's all I have for you. What I'm going to do right now is I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to take a few minutes for you to talk with others, and then if you need to use the restrooms, they're right down, uh, down those stairs out there, and then we'll come back up, and in about 10 minutes, we'll start our next session. Let me pray. Our Father God, we do ask that you would help us to understand more and more fully each day that you are love, that you have loved us, and that as a response, we must love others. Lord, I pray that the love of each person in this room will grow and will become much more like the love that Christ has for us through the work of this conference. And I also pray, Father God, that you would please allow us to use the scripture rightly as the sufficient word in all things, that you would help us to love each other by pointing each other to Christ through the scriptures. And Lord, I ask that in all of these things, you would transform us and make us like your son, Jesus Christ, for that is our desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.